Hi, this is Jim Lovato. I'm president and founder of a company called The Performance Group. Our business is helping the leadership of growth-oriented companies realize their potential. We do this by working with their sales force and helping those individuals discover and develop their unique abilities and to align those abilities with their opportunities. That's why we're known as a sales force development company. On our program with us is Jeff Cloven. Jeff is an author, speaker, broadcaster, and a longtime columnist for Fortune Magazine. Jeff, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Glad to be with you. Jeff, in case you haven't uh, heard about him, wrote one of the national bestsellers called Talent is Overrated, What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everybody Else. However, what we're going to talk with Jeff about on our program here today is his new book, The Upside of the Downturn, 10 Management Strategies to Prevail in the Recession and Thrive in the Aftermath. And Jeff, I'm excited to see at least the title of your book. And then after I saw the title, I read the book and I said, here's somebody who has a message that is very timely and we need to have it on the program because our programs lately have been talking about what you're talking about, which is looking for the opportunity. The first question I'm going to ask you is this. Have you ever seen anything in terms of an economy like you're seeing right now? Yeah, well, the answer is no. I mean, uh, nobody who is alive today has experienced anything like it in their business life because this is now the longest recession we've had since the Great Depression. And I always want to make clear, it's not the Great Depression. It's not going to be that deep. We're not going to have 25% unemployment like we did back then. But this thing has gone on now for well over uh, 16, 18 months, and we haven't had anything like that since the 1930s. So we are in uncharted territory for everybody. You know, it's interesting that uh, back in October, personally I've been through three or four of these, in October, when uh, the economy, as I called it, took the exit ramp all together, usually you drift yeah. into one of these things, <laughs> yeah. and here we yeah. took an exit ramp, and I was telling the audience that we work with at the performance group that your salespeople have probably never been through a recession before, let's start with that, but never been through one that looks like this, and if right. you don't equip them the right way, they're really going to add to their frustration. And one of the things that I found interesting in the book, you made a comment about this, that in the environment we're in right now is you're going to be tested like you've probably never been tested before. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, look, the last recession we had was uh, in 2001, and it was a very short, very mild recession. And the last one uh, before that was in 1990-91, also very short, and very mild. And so you've got an awful lot of people in business today who've never been through really any serious uh, downturn. Ne not at all. And so you, what you're saying is exactly right. Something like this, you know, which is really serious and really long-lasting, uh, is testing everybody. And, you know, as I say in the book, we should think of that as an opportunity. You are being put, I don't care who you are or what business you're in, you are being pushed uh, beyond your normal ability. Uh, and frankly, that is an opportunity because the only way anybody gets better at anything is by being pushed beyond what they normally do. So, you know, it's happening, whether you like it or not. Jeff, I was in the Detroit airport when I first saw your book, 
And what I was impressed by was, first of all, the title. I thought, what a great title, The Upside of the Downturn. And then I read the book and saw the insights you had in there. And then I was impressed not only with the content, but also in the publishing business. This happened in light speed. So what did you do in order to get this accomplished from thinking it through, getting your thoughts down on paper, writing it, and then getting it published so quickly? You know, I, I was actually really slow in realizing that this is a book that had to be done because I didn't, um, you know, really settle on that until probably December of last year, uh, talking with my publisher who really wanted a book on this topic. And, you know, at that point it was certainly clear that we needed one, but only, only then did I really decide that, yeah, I had to do it. So, you know, having been slow up to that point, I, I then, as you say, had to be really fast thereafter. So I wrote it uh, very quickly, uh, basically January, February, March of this year. And then the publisher, um, the portfolio imprint of Penguin, uh, also did a great job of publishing it much faster than books normally get published. But most people probably don't know this, but publishing a book is a very slow affair normally. Uh, the publisher takes many months after getting the manuscript. In this case, uh, they got the book, you know, printed, distributed, edited, and all of that out there in the stores by uh, about a month ago. So they did real fast work also because we, we realized, obviously, we had to. Well, and I also think that that's a good message for our audience. When you see opportunity today, you do have to kind of move beyond the speed you probably would have moved in the past just to take advantage of it. Yes, I mean that's absolutely right. Uh, it's it's actually excuse me. <clears throat> it's one of the most important lessons, and I think it's fairly early in the book that all of your old ways of operating and all your old plans and strategies and so forth they need to be thrown out. This is a different situation, and it is amazing how people sometimes don't want to do that. Either they just are uncomfortable, or they think it's defeatism or something to say that we can't pursue our old plans or use our usual methods. Well, it's not defeatism. It's just acknowledging reality. Uh, the world is different from what we had been working with previously. So, yeah, you're going to have to move faster, uh, do things in ways that you've never done them before. I mean, I certainly did in getting this book out, and the publisher certainly did, too. Um, you so, got to do it. So are you, re are you really suggesting to our audience that uh, maybe in a leadership role or ownership of business, to toilet flush the old strategies? Well, it depends on when you made them. I mean, uh, certainly, at this point, it's probably the case that nobody has any strategies left over from before the recession because it's been dragging on so long. Well, well Jeff, um, Jeff, let me just change the question. because I, I, Okay, I yeah. probably asked you the wrong question. Let me ask it this way, then. We probably have some managers out there who are holding on to some old beliefs as they try to form these new strategies. So what perspective should they take when forming these new strategies? Well, I, that's a great question because everybody in business now needs to answer a fundamental question, which is, as we go through this recession, is my business, my industry, being thrown off its normal uh, trend line, and then we're going to get back on it and, you know, continue 
more or less as we did before. And there are plenty of industries like that. Or is my industry being fundamentally changed so that we're never going to go back to the way things were before? Uh, for example, uh, the media industry, the auto industry, uh, a lot of the financial services industry are in that second category. So you, you really do have to decide which group you're in um, and be very clear uh, you know, about which decision you've made. Our guest is Jeff Colvin, the book, The Upside of the Downturn. And Jeff, we'll get to the 10 management strategies you talk about in your book shortly. One of the things that was in the book that caught my attention was the chapter on the day the world changed, which was June 13th, 2007. Tell our audience what is significant about that date. Well, you know, it's, it's a funny thing because, I mean, first of all, I would say that if you had to name a date when the economy really started to fall apart and everything started to change, that would be my uh, suggestion. Nothing dramatic happened on that date. At the time, nobody knew that anything large was happening. You could identify these turning points uh, only in retrospect. But here's what happened. Up until that point, uh, the price of risk, the, the amount of money that investors demanded in order to take a risk, had become unbelievably, actually insanely low. Investors were willing to risk money on all kinds of things and get only a tiny return uh, for doing so. It was crazy. It made no economic sense, but that's the way it was, and that was a lot of what was fueling uh, the boom. Uh, and, you know, in the book, I look at some interest rates and compare them. Basically, the interest rate on a 10-year government security, the safest thing in the world, was quite high at that point. The interest rate on junk bonds, the riskiest investments, were quite low, only a tiny bit higher than the government bonds. It made no sense, but that's the way it was. Uh, what happened on June 13, 2007, is that those interest rates, after converging for a long, long time, began to diverge. Investors finally woke up to the fact that they needed to be paid for the risks they were taking. The risks were real, more real than they had thought. And so these interest rates started to diverge. The price of risk started to go up. It went up for an incredible 18 months. And it went from being incredibly crazily low to becoming insanely high, so that by December of last year, uh, when the gap was widest, uh, the, the yield on the Treasury security was extremely low, about 2%. Uh, the yield on the index of junk bonds had gone up to about 20%. So there was this 18-point gap, uh, which was unprecedented. Uh, the price of risk had become insanely high. And when, when it's that high, it means basically nobody's willing to risk any money. And if nobody's willing to risk any money, then the economy comes to a halt. I mean, the only way our economy makes progress is because, you know, we have capital markets that are willing to finance uh, businesses, willing to finance new ideas and stuff. So basically that all stopped. Um, and that, so that, that, that was, the, in, in my mind, at least one of the really fundamental things that led to this recession. And when that happened, you, you also write in the book, and I'm going to quote directly from the book here, the downturn is severe and painful, answering the prayers of every business leader 
who wants to make big change. So right. what almost seems like a paradoxical comment because the, the, the severe and painful backed up by answering prayers. So, right. so what's your insight on why this is a good thing for business leaders who are looking for change? Well, every business leader who has tried to make a big change in his or her organization uh, has come up against the same problem, you know, from the beginning of time, basically. As long as things are good, as long as things don't seem desperately bad, it is very difficult to get an organization to change in any uh, meaningful or significant way. And so you always hear business leaders talking about how they need to create a burning platform. That's always the phrase they use. We need to create a burning platform, meaning this sense of mandatory, urgent change. Uh, And when times are good, frankly, that is really, really difficult. It's hard to convince people that we are, you know, we we urgently have to change our fundamental uh, ways of operating. But when times are bad, especially really bad, like they are right now, well, the platform is actually on fire. You don't have to convince anybody. Uh, That argument, that part of the argument is easy. So in this environment, if you tell people we have to do things fundamentally differently, they are a lot more likely to listen and to believe you. So this this is the time to make fundamental change. So what you're saying is it's a really good time to get people's attention. You, you got their attention. That's exactly right. You've got their attention already. So now the question is, what are you going to do with it? Jeff, recognizing change is one thing. Where does the challenge still lie for our leaders? Well, I think uh, the challenge that so many of them face is simply acknowledging how much change they need. It's kind of human nature to minimize the amount of change and disruption that we're going to have to go through. So, first of all, the typical company uh, sort of got dragged into this, you know, didn't want to believe that this recession was going to be big and bad, um, and only reluctantly concluded that it was was as bad as it actually is. Now that we're in that uh, stage, and nobody can any longer deny that it's a really big, bad recession, uh, it's human nature to minimize what we're going to have to change in order to get through it. And so the, the real challenge here is to face the new reality. Um, I always go back to this. It was one of the favorite um, pieces of guidance of Jack Welch, who always said, you know, confront reality not as it used to be, not as you wish it were, but as it is. And if you really do that in this situation, depending on your business and your company, you'll probably have to conclude that you need really deep change in your organization. Um, If it helps to get a bunch of people in a room and talk about it that way, um, to sort of get everybody's perspective, that's great. Do it. Uh, If it helps to bring in outsiders who can describe their perspective on what's happening, because sometimes they have more credibility than insiders, whatever it is in your organization. Um, that's the challenge that has to be met. Our guest is Jeff Colvin, his new book, The Upside of the Downturn. And Jeff, your experience 
from not only the uh, programs that you're on and your radio program that you do and being a columnist for Fortune magazine and getting to talk to different industry leaders and government officials, you probably have a unique perspective. So before we get to some of the meat of your book about some of the 10 management strategies that you say that you should be doing to prevail in a recession and thrive in the aftermath, what else has fundamentally changed in business? Well, of course, you could talk a lot about the, the greater government role, and depending on your industry, uh, you probably know what it is. But, it, but we, the big picture there is government is going to have a larger role in the economy overall, uh, much more regulatory, uh, greater regulatory role in business, um, just going to be uh, taxing more. You know, look, a, a bigger part of the economy is going to be paying taxes. So the government is going to have a much larger role uh, there. Other ways in which the world is really different and going to be different, um, the behavior of U.S. consumers. Um, you know, we have always kept reading that consumer spending was 70 or 71 percent of the U.S. economy, and that is what it was recently. But that's a fairly recent phenomenon. I mean, if you go back 10, 20, 40, 50 years, it has never been that high, um, actually, until you get to some very strange, you know, uh, uh, anomalous times uh, back 75 or 80 years ago. Normally, consumer spending has only been 62, 65% of the U.S. economy. The recent levels were unprecedented. And so I think we're probably going to go back to a more normal time where consumer spending wasn't that large a proportion of the U.S. economy, and uh, saving and investment were a larger portion of the economy. Now, depending on what business you're in, that could have a significant effect on you. The larger issue there is the behavior of U.S. consumers. Are they going to be spending less and saving more? Are they going to be more risk-averse for a long time to come when it comes to their um, saving and investing? I think there's a pretty good case to be made that they will be. Um, are they going to be more worried about getting and keeping a job and less likely to uh, be a job hopper than they have been in the past? Um, I think there's a pretty good case to be made uh, that that's going to happen. Um, another basic change that is going to be a, a fundamental one that lasts a long time is uh, the world economy is going to become less U.S.-centric. And there's nothing wrong with that, I want to point out. Um, as the rest of the world grows faster than we do, uh, inevitably we have to be a smaller proportion of the whole. Um, that's fine. More trade, more growth uh, in other countries is good for us. It enables us to you know, have a, a more vibrant economy and keep getting richer. But the, the world economy is going to be less focused on us and with most of the growth, or I should say faster levels of growth, taking place outside the U.S., uh, every business is probably going to want to see if it can become more global. So these are all big, big long-term trends uh, that we can count on. In your book, in, in fact, it's Chapter 1, you call this the greatest opportunity. In the midst of the yeah. longest recession we have seen, why do you call this the greatest opportunity? pretty simple reason, and that is that times of turbulence, times when the conditions are toughest, are always the times when the greatest change in the competitive order takes place. So when I say it's a great opportunity, 
opportunity. I'm talking about an opportunity for businesses and business leaders. Um, the little story I tell in the book, which I won't go through uh, in its entirety, actually has to do with uh, the Tour de France, the great bicycle race, um, and the fact that uh, inevitably in that race, you know, you'll have somebody who is leading the race for days and days. The ra- if, if you're not a bike fan, I mean, the, this race goes on for over three weeks uh, and goes all over France. You will have somebody who can lead the race for day after day after day, but inevitably, near the end of the race, uh, it goes into the Alps, the steepest mountains. These are the most brutally difficult conditions in this race. It is it is beyond belief what these riders do. They they ride up steep mountains for hours without stopping. I, I do not know how they do it, but they do it. What happens every year in the Alps? is that the whole competitive order shifts. Leaders become laggards, laggards become leaders, and the competitive order shifts completely, and then a few stages remain in the race after that. But since they tend to be on the flat ground, uh, the competitive order doesn't shift, because when times are good, it's very difficult to shove anybody out of their place in the competitive order. Well, this sounds like a nice story for our time, and it is a nice story for our time, because there is, in fact, plenty of research showing that the very same thing happens in business. Uh, It's the times of turbulence. Basically, it is the roughest, most difficult conditions, which are only a small part of the overall economic cycle, that are the times when the competitive order shifts in big ways. And so, now is that time. We are economically in the out. This is when you have your greatest chance, your greatest opportunity, as I say, to improve your place in the competitive order. And, by the way, we see it happening right now in all kinds of industries, most notably uh, Wall Street, you know, where two firms, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase, are cementing their place in the competitive order at the very top. Uh, This is their big opportunity, and they are taking advantage of it. But it's the same in every business. In your book, which, by the way, is the upside or the downturn, you talk about the 10 management strategies to prevail in the recession and thrive in the aftermath. Let's go back in time again. You're sitting down. You're doing your research. You're putting together some cause and effect relationships. How did you narrow this down to 10? Because I would think if you're sitting down, there'd be a hundred things that would be priorities. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. There are an endless number of things um, that you could talk about. And so, you know, I mean, the basic thinking was, well, you, you got to make this digestible. you got to make this accessible. You can't do a hundred. got to do ten. Um, so what are they? And I've been very lucky in my job to be able to watch an awful lot of companies and an awful lot of business leaders over 30 years and see what characterizes the winners and the losers. And so you know, I settled on these 10 as, in my experience, the biggest, most important ones. That was it. Okay. Jeff, you talked in our program today about thinking through 
from a different paradigm what your strategy should be. And in your book, you have one called Protect Your Most Valuable Asset, which is obviously your people. And in that chapter, you don't recommend necessarily rushing in to doing layoffs. When traditionally, especially in this recession, it's almost like, well, across the board, we're going to lay off 25% of our labor force. So explain to our audience why it's not necessarily a good idea to be laying people off right now. Yep. And, you know, you're right. I mean, it's almost a reflexive action in a recession for managers or companies to lay people off. And I want to be clear. I realize that in some circumstances, you have to. It depends on your business, uh, your competitors, and so forth. Sometimes you have no choice. And so I, I want to be clear. I realize that uh, sometimes you simply have to do it. What I say in the book is, fine, but before you do it, think hard about what the real costs of laying people off are. Uh, they are typically much higher than most managers realize. Uh, an example that in a way is kind of an extreme example, but those are always the most instructive, uh, is Toyota, as you say, which has never had a layoff. I mean, they've you know, fired people for performance and stuff, but they've never had a mass layoff, uh, even in tough economic conditions. Now, they don't promise that they never will. And, you know, maybe someday they will, but they've never had one. And when you stop and think about how that policy has worked out for them, uh, especially at a time when General Motors and Ford and Chrysler have laid off tens of thousands of people uh, in just the past few years, you start to say, okay, now how does this work? Well, think about this. Okay, they, Toyota doesn't lay any people off. Obviously, in times like this, those people are not making as many cars as they used to be. So what do they do when they come into work in the morning? Well, they may spend part of the time making cars, but the rest of the time uh, they will take classes. They will learn more about the technology. They will go out on the factory floor and figure out more efficient ways to lay it out or more efficient ways to uh, do their operations. Uh, maybe they'll do community service projects. Uh, maybe they'll be evaluated in different ways. I mean, there are all kinds of things that Toyota does to keep them busy. Now, what this means is the recession will eventually end, and when it does, Toyota doesn't have to go out and hire new people and train new people. Uh, to meet the increase in demand. Those people are already there coming in every day. And because they've been taking classes and so forth, they are actually much better employees than the competition probably has. They're more knowledgeable. They've got new experiences and stuff. In addition, those employees are enormously grateful to the company for having stuck with them when the other companies in the industry were firing people. Uh, the communities in which Toyota operates are enormously grateful to the company for having not laid people off. So there are all these advantages that come from uh, not doing it. Oh, by the way, another one. The best young people, when they're deciding what company they want to go to work for, say, gee, you know what, a company that doesn't lay people off when times are tough, that sounds pretty good to me. So the company attracts better people that way. Now, you know, I talk about this sometimes, and folks, sometimes folks will say, 
well, yeah, but Toyota's, you know, biggest auto company in the world. They've got a AAA credit rating. They can afford to do all this stuff. Well, of course, the obvious question is, which is the cause and which is the effect? Uh, It's obvious that it's a circular thing, right? These people practices help make them the world's biggest, most successful company. So it's a lesson that everybody at least needs to stop and think about. And especially your insight on the fact that what do you do when you have downtime? Well, get better. Get better. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, train your your people. The the other thing you talk about, and I thought was, again, was very insightful, uh, was Chapter 9. In the book, you said price with courage. And yeah. boy, I work with enough sales forces. <laughs> you know, you almost have to take your courage pill in the morning because right now, even some really good companies that we work with are just prone to discounting and, and almost yeah. a reactive discounting. And yeah. so, what's your strategy in terms of being cautious with your pricing strategy? Yeah. I mean, you're so right. For an awful lot of companies, they just assume that they have to cut prices in the recession. Um, and again, I'm realistic. I know that in some businesses, you do have to. I mean, in some businesses, if you sell commodities, you don't even set your own price. The prices are set in markets around the world and so forth. But most companies have a lot of flexibility, more flexibility than they think when it comes to pricing. And the message here is be very careful and really think hard before you cut prices because in all kinds of ways that is digging yourself into a hole that it is really difficult to get out of. Um, first of all, if you think you're going to you know, gain any ground, it's doubtful. Uh, price cuts very rarely actually pay for themselves. Uh, you'd need a very considerable increase in volume to pay for a price cut. And then, assuming that your competitors match your price cut, uh, you may not get any increase in volume uh, at all. Uh, But what you do do is uh, you probably damage the value of your brand. Uh, We've seen many examples of this in this recession, uh, where companies uh, cut prices, and the result is, you know, the buyer thinks, well, why did I ever pay more, you know? If they're willing to sell this to me for what they're now charging, why did I ever have to pay more than that? I mean, in, in, the, in pricing theory, this is called the reference price, which is generally the lowest price that a customer ever paid for a given product or service. And that's the price they remember. That's the reference price because they compare every thing they are ever charged for it in the future with that price to your point who was the retailer that did the deep discounting last christmas season Saks avenue did some really radical price cutting over this past uh holiday season and the the damage it did was considerable first of all i should say they cut prices 50 percent uh early in the season and then an additional 40, or maybe I've got it in the reverse order, but when you co- uh, compound those two things, it came to like a 70% price cut uh, just before Christmas. Now, if you're selling high-priced luxury goods, which is what Saks Avenue does, uh, the high price is actually one of, the, uh, one of the traits, one of the components of the product. 
um, it's part of a luxury product, that it costs a lot of money. If you suddenly tell your customers, you know what, that uh, Valentino evening dress that we were charging $2,950 for, well, you can now have it for $885. What you're telling the customer is, well, okay, why was it, why did I ever think of paying $2,950? Why was it ever worth that? Uh, all the customers who actually did pay that feel like dope for having ever done it. And presumably, the folks who run Valentino are furious because they figure Saks is devaluing their brand. And so Saks, in doing this, hurts its relationships with customers and with suppliers. Uh and it becomes a very difficult pole to get out of. Well, Jeff, let's be really clear for our audience. In your experience, have you ever seen where discounting actually grows your business? Well, not that I know of. I mean, I, I don't spend my days in this uh, area, but uh, uh, n- no, I, I have to say I haven't. I mean, there's the everyday low price strategy, but that's different. That's what we're it. talking about here is cutting prices. Uh, and it is, I mean, what I what I say in the book and what I always say is, look, if at all possible, you don't want to cut price. You want to redefine value. Come up with a completely different value proposition for your customer. And it may involve a lower price for a different uh, customer experience. But that's, that's fine because then the two are not directly comparable. Think about what your customer's new problems are and come up with new solutions. And the, the example you talk about, and I'd like, I like to have you share this with our audience because it's so current and relevant, is what Hyundai did. So share with our audience right. your insight on Hyundai. Yeah, it's a, it's a great story. I mean, it's a great example. At the beginning of this year, uh, car companies, I mean, that was arguably just about the depth of this recession, really one of the worst times. And the car companies were desperate to sell cars. And most of them, thought in the conventional way, okay, the recession, times are tough, unemployment's rising, our customers uh, have less money to spend. So if we want to sell cars, we've got to cut the price. And most of the car companies were just beating each other up to see who could cut prices the most. Uh, one car company thought about it a little differently. Hyundai said, okay, Yes, we are in a recession, so what's the problem? The problem really is that customers are unsure of their future. They don't know if they're going to have a job six months or a year from now. And so they don't want to sign a two- or three- or four-year loan when they buy a new car. So they're not buying new cars. That's their new problem, so what's our new solution? And what they came up with was, uh, this offer that said, okay, buy a car, buy it from us, finance it with us, and if you lose your job in the next year and can't make the payments anymore, uh, you can just cancel the deal. Give us the car back, we'll cancel the note, you're off the hook, okay? You can go ahead and make this commitment. All right, so I looked at the sales results at the end of January. Toyota down 37%. Uh, Ford down 40, 
uh, GM down 50%, Chrysler down 55%, Hyundai up 14%, without talking about price. Now, what happened here was that everybody noticed that this strategy, which, by the way, had never been tried before, this was new, okay, took courage. This had not been used previously in the industry. Uh, everybody else noticed that it worked. And what we now see, of course, is every other company uh, trying to outdo themselves, outdo one another in making an even better offer. So now we see some of them saying, well, you know, you lose your job, we'll make your payments for you for three months or something like that. So what you're really saying was that, that in the Tour de France, Hyundai was <laughs> trailing in the good times. When they got a little turbulent, that's when they that's when they pulled ahead, and now they become the, really the leader, at least in that pricing strategy. Well, that's right. I mean, and they had all kinds of stuff to gain. I mean, because they were a small player, they were a real laggard, you know. And they're not the biggest car company, but obviously. But they made tremendous progress, and they forced the big guys to pay attention and actually emulate them, which is quite something. A lot of people are talking about what you should or shouldn't be doing during these turbulent times. And at the same time, Jeff, you're one of the few people that are talking about personal development during turbulent times. In fact, you have a whole chapter on it called Don't Forget to Grow Yourself. Why do you consider that one of the top 10 most important things you could be doing right now? Well, you know, as I say, if, you, if this is a great opportunity uh, this recession, one of the opportunities is the, the opportunity to develop yourself personally. Um, as I say, as you pointed out earlier, I mean, we're all being tested uh, in this time. This is a great chance to develop your own abilities, for starting with your leadership abilities. Uh, everybody is in some kind of a leadership role. Um, even if you don't run the whole company, um, you might run some part of it. Even if you don't run some part of it, you work with people. Um, you know, you work with people. You, you may have a family and friends and so forth who look to you. I mean, everybody is a leader of some, uh, in one way or another. And tough times like this are a great chance to think about what real leadership is and to uh, develop those uh, qualities. So we talk about some of them in the book, about being calm and in control, uh, you know, just just standing up and being seen, uh, being decisive, uh, explaining the crisis uh, in a larger context, which is one of the most valuable things you can do, whether it's with coworkers or family members or whatever, putting this crisis in context as something that is a normal part of life. Uh, it's something that we can learn from. It's something that we have the power to respond to. If you can frame it like that, people will respond a whole lot better than they otherwise would. Our guest is Jeff Colvin. His book, The Upside of the Downturn, 10 Management Strategies to Prevail in the Recession and Thrive in the Aftermath. Jeff, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Is there a question that I should have asked you today that I haven't asked you or some other insight you'd like to leave with our audience today? Well, I think you hit all the big points. Uh, the, the only insight or point I want to leave them with uh, is one that we touched on earlier, and that is that this is the time when things get shaken up. Uh, this is the time.
time when all kinds of weaknesses are revealed in some performers, companies and managers and so forth, and the time when strengths are revealed in others, that none of these things were revealed when times were good. So this is the great opportunity to um, move up, to move ahead. And, and you know, look, this recession is going to end, and when it does, uh, the competitive movement becomes much more difficult. So you can't let this time get past you. Now's the time to do it. You're going to find the book at most major bookstores, or you can go out to Amazon.com. We have a link on our website, which is biztalkradioshow.com. But, Jeff, if people wanted to find out more information, where should they go? Well, absolutely go to my own website, which is jeffcolvin.com. Now, that has to be spelled properly. You have to be very careful about this, because I spell Jeff G-E-O-F-F. G-E-O-F-F, Colvin, C-O-L-V-I-N, jeffcolvin.com. And you'll get everything there. And as you say, you can easily get the book at any of the uh, online booksellers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders, whatever. Jeff, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website at www.biztalkradioshow.com. Or you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. If you want to learn the strategies how to take your sales force to the next level, you can contact the Performance Group at 800-550-9509 or visit us on the web at www.pmgllc.net.